The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I believe in preaching books of the Bible, and I think you know that by now. If you've been around any length of time, you know that I believe in preaching through books of the Bible. And so nothing is changing now. We believe that these last 16 chapters are very much the Word of God. This is the living Word of God, and, and, uh, and we're, we want to honor it. But we also understand that... Um, that we're not Israel, and that there are only so much, there's only so much that you and I can glean as far as application from the instructions to build the tabernacle. So what I want to do is I want to honor these last 16 chapters of Exodus by not skipping over them. Uh, if, you, if I look, and, and I, I did this, I looked at what others have done, other preachers have done as they preach through the book of Exodus, and many of them finish out the law, jump to verse chapter 32 and preach the golden calf and that's it they don't do anything else so i don't, I don't want to and i'm not saying that they have dishonored i'm just saying i want to honor the word of god by preaching the last 16 chapters but i also want to honor you by not laboring all the minutiae of what is uh, going to go into this tabernacle and i'm not looking for things behind every post and every ring and every loop and all those things. I don't, I don't want to labor those um, because I want to honor you as well. So here's the plan. With God's help, I am planning to finish out the book of Exodus over the next five weeks. Gasp in the room, right? Uh, because I think when I started this, I, I told you I think it, it probably, it's probably going to take us around four years to get through the book of Exodus and uh, there were gasps in the room that day, my daughter being one of them. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I don't know that I can do this. I hope I can do this. And with the Lord's help, we will get through this. Um, this means that before Thanksgiving, we will finish out the book of Exodus. Uh, for the men in the room, this means that uh, we will finish the book of Exodus before football season finishes up. Um, that's probably a more relevant point. You kind of grab a hold of that one a little easier. Um, but what we'll do with this is uh, this will put us just over two years in the book of Exodus. And uh, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at sort of the, the instructions for and the carrying out of the tabernacle, the physical structure itself. Uh, then two weeks after that, we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at the golden calf and the rebellion uh, and, and God's um, desire there to start over, wipe them out and start over. And uh, Moses' intercession on behalf of the people. And then the final week, we'll look at chapter 20 and God's glory filling the tabernacle. And so, sound like a plan? Eager to see if I can actually stick to it? Uh, we'll see. Uh, well, in looking at the rest of Exodus, here's the question I want us to ask. I want us to ask the question, what does the tabernacle teach us about God? What does the tabernacle teach us about God? That, I think, is going to help us stay on task rather than looking for all sorts of symbolism behind every little color and shape and, and all the instructions. Uh, so today I, I hope to be able to do this. Um, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of Exodus 25, and then we're going to be all over the place. Okay, so here we go. Exodus 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution 
From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair. Tanned ram, ram skins. Goat skins. Acacia wood. Oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting. Uh, for the ephod and, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So looking at those verses and really the rest of the chapters on the table today, or the rest of the books on the table today, um, what can we learn about God from the tabernacle? First is this, that God wants to be with his people. God wants to be with his people. There in verse 8, and what I just read to you, God said, let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That word dwell is a word that means to, to settle down, to abide, to take up residence, or to tabernacle. The neighborhood, if you will, is about to get an upgrade. Property values are about to go up. God's moving in. Yeah, I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes you, someone moves into your neighborhood and, and maybe they don't quite keep their place up. And you think, oh no, there goes the neighborhood. Exactly the opposite here. God says, build for me a tabernacle, a, a sanctuary where I may dwell, settle down, abide, take up residence, tabernacle in their midst. And I don't want you to miss that this was God's idea. That God is the one who initiates this. The basic tenet of all religions of the world throughout all of history is this. How can I get to God? It's the basic tenet of all religions. Therefore, biblical faith is not religious in that respect. Biblical faith is not about us figuring out how we're going to get to God, but biblical faith is how God came to us. God wants to be with His people. The God of the Bible didn't sit around waiting on, on people to come to Him. Instead, God came to His people. And there hadn't always been a need for, for God to come to His people in a specific designated place. If you think about it, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve, set them in the garden, and then there wasn't like a special place in the garden where they went to to meet with God. Instead, the Bible tells us that there in the garden, there was this unhindered fellowship with God. That they just knew His presence. They were in perfect fellowship with God and with one another. In Genesis 1 and 2, there's no specific place where God must show up. Man just simply walked with God. But in Genesis 3, that fellowship suddenly became hindered when Adam and Eve rebelled against their God and chose to do what they wanted to do rather than obeying Him. And now, all of a sudden, fellowship is hindered because of their rebellion. Man, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And if you recall the story there in Genesis 3 toward the end, God said, I will place cherubim at the east of the garden to guard the way with a fiery sword so that they may not come back into the garden, eat the tree of life, and in that state become in a permanent state in, in their 
fallen condition. God couldn't stomach that. And so he expels them, but yet he guards them. And there, throughout the rest of the Bible, and some of you have expressed to me, I just don't know how all the Bible fits together. Let me give you a little bit of biblical history here. Um, from that point forward, man begins to, to grow and do his thing. Noah comes along, destruction of the earth. God kind of starts all over with Noah and his family. But then God begins to meet. Even though man has sinned, God keeps the fellowship intact. God keeps the fellowship intact by coming to a man named Abraham. And God meets with Abraham, not just in this unhindered fellowship, but instead at a specific place. The burning bush. God meets with Abraham and calls him to himself and says, I will make of you a great nation that will be a blessing to all the nations. And God begins to meet in specific places with his people. He continues Abraham and Abraham's descendants to meet with them at, at altars that they would build. And in the Old Testament, is you read about these altars that they would build where God had met with them in these special places. Later on in this chapter that we just read, Moses is instructed to build a tabernacle where God would fellowship with his people more regularly. He was not just occasionally at an altar somewhere or not just in this this. All of a sudden, a bush that's not consumed, yet it burns. But now God says, build me a tabernacle so that I may fellowship with you in a specific place more regularly. Later on, the tabernacle traveled with them all through the wilderness. And, and it wasn't until they finished their conquering of the land and settled in the land that that place became more permanent. It went from being a tent or a tabernacle to a temple. And Solomon built that temple once they were settled into the land. All throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's all sorts of happenings that center around that temple being the place where God meets with his people. But then, at some point in history, when the fullness of time had come, Jesus comes along. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 and, and verse 14, uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word in John 1.14, dwelt, should sound familiar to us. It's the word I just told you a minute ago meant to settle down, to abide, to take up residence, or to tabernacle. All throughout the Bible, it has been God, once man sinned, having to meet with his people in specific locations. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus becomes God with skin on, and he tabernacles among his people. You look at the life of Jesus, his earthly life. In, in Luke chapter 2 and in John chapter 2, we learn that Jesus had a love for the temple the place where God would meet with his people because that's where God was with his people. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 49, when Mary and Joseph lost track of Jesus as a young boy, and they finally find him. Jesus said to him, he said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In John chapter 2, when Jesus later in his life comes to the temple and sees the money changers taking advantage of those that were coming to worship God, the place where he would meet specifically with his people, 
Jesus becomes angry, becomes righteously indignant, and turns over the tables and makes whips and drives out the money changers. And Jesus there in John 2.17, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. But the temple would not always be necessary. In John chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, Jesus met a woman at the well and the, the woman questioned him about where it was right to worship God. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is telling her, look, you understand this because sin came in the world that fellowship with God became hindered and God, therefore, if there was to be fellowship at all, had to have specific locations where that would happen. But Jesus says it will not always be so. The temple will not always be necessary. That's why in Mark chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we know, because we have the rest of the story looking back, that Jesus there is not talking about the physical, literal temple, but he's talking about the temple that is his body. Crucify me, place me in the tomb, and three days later I will rise. And I will revolutionize the way God meets with people forever. Jesus understood that the unhindered fellowship of, of the Garden of Eden would be restored through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That altars and tabernacles and temples would be made obsolete. Now, if you go back and you put yourself back in the context of the Israelites in the wilderness... God says, build a tabernacle. That tabernacle is going to travel with you because it's portable. And you think, how many times must an Israelite have looked at the tabernacle when it was set up for them? How many times must they have seen it from a distance and stood there and stared at the curtain that guarded the entrance to the tabernacle, wondering, I wonder what it's like inside. majority of Israelites never got to see the inside of the temple. The only time they were ever able to see the, the temple, they saw the outside of it set up, or they saw maybe some of the furnishings and the, and the fabrics as they were broken down and being transported. But they never actually got to see the inside of the tabernacle. To which I would say to you, if you are here today as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... We don't stand on the outside looking and wondering. I wonder what it's like to go in where God is. You and I don't have that same experience because we live on this side of the cross. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The Israelites may have stood outside and said, Oh, I wonder. Dad, do you know what it's like to go in there? Son, I don't. I've never been in there myself. And neither was my dad. You and I don't have to stand and wonder 
The Spirit resides in us, making us, as believers, Christians, the temple of God Himself. Ephesians chapter 2, 19-22 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Meaning, as Gentiles, we've been brought into the family of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, the God, for God by the Spirit. Tremper Longman, who has written a short little book called How to Read Exodus, said this, In short, then, with the coming of Jesus, the relevance of a special place to meet with God has faded away. No longer and never again will there be a divinely sanctioned holy site. After all, now every place is holy. The believer can call on the name of God anywhere. The Holy Spirit dwells not in an architectural structure, but in the church and in the individual believer's heart. Church, aren't you glad that God longs to be with His people? That He tabernacles with His people. It's a reminder that God longs, He wants to be with His people, and He has he not and will not stop at anything to see that that comes to pass. You and I have, as believers, direct access into the very presence of God. No matter where we are, there is no pilgrimage to Mecca. Because God doesn't wait somewhere for us to come to Him. God says, I will tabernacle in you. So the tabernacle teaches us that God longs to be with his people. Secondly, though, is this. The tabernacle teaches us about God, that God meets us where we are. God meets us where we are. Stop and think about the fact that God, all caps, Bold, italicized, underlined God is going to live in a tent. God meets us where we are. I mean, think about the fact, God in a tent, is that not the ultimate condescendence? God condescends to where we are that He bends low. I mean, what would you do today if you go to Cabela's and you're there this afternoon and all of a sudden you look over and there's like the president in Cabela's. He's looking at a pup tent. You know, he's going to take this thing home. I was thinking about a, uh, you know, a camping trip, all this. You're thinking, is there not a better tent for the president of the United States? How much more so the fact that God says... Construct for me a tent. Because I want to camp with you. Imagine. God doesn't... Imagine laying in your tent at night as an Israelite and, and just having this mind, this thought run through your mind. A few tents over is God. Now, God doesn't literally actually have a body so He doesn't actually live in the tent. But this is a way that God is saying, you and your sin, you have ruined yourself before me, but yet, 
I love you and therefore I will make for you this tangible, visible expression that I am with you. In fact, at every stage, God met them where they were. While they were nomads wandering without a permanent home, God wandered with them in the tabernacle, this tent. Later on, when they finished conquering the land and took possession of the land, God settled in the land in Solomon's temple. When the fullness of time had come and they waited for the promised Messiah, the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among them. Hebrews 2.14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same. I mean, you think about this, that the, the imagery here of God moving into a tent to meet his people where they are, to so identify with them. If they were living in tents, he would live in a tent. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene and says, they live in flesh, therefore I will live in flesh. As much as they take of flesh and blood, so will I. This is why, and this hit me as I'm studying this, this is why in Matthew 27, Jesus is crucified. The veil of the temple is ripped, the earthquakes happen, and the centurion stands at the base of the cross. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, what took place? They were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. This is what's going on with the centurion. He's realizing here... This is no mere man that we've just crucified. This is God himself. You know what, in essence, you know what he's saying? The centurion in this moment, when he says, surely this is the Son of God, this centurion is saying, just a few tenths over is God. The centurion realizes, just as nails went through Jesus' flesh, they could in the same way pierce my flesh. Is that not a thought that will blow your mind? Who are we that God would put skin on? God meets His people where they are. Not only did Jesus come and identify with us by taking on flesh, but while we wait for the inevitable conclusion to the rest of God's story, when He brings history to its appointed end, Jesus said that it is better that I go away so the Spirit may come. For our sake, Jesus goes away so the Helper could come. That's what he said in John 16, verses 7 and 8. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, John 1, 14 the word, of God, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. At the end of his life, he says, it's better for me to pack up my tent and go so the helper can come. If I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteous, righteousness and judgment. Jesus, when he left the earth and ascended back to the Father, isn't pulling up his stakes to leave us here on our own. Instead, he continues the work of tabernacling among us by the work of and the presence of the Spirit of God. This is what Jesus was getting at in John chapter 3, 
when he says, you must be born again, how can I be born again? I'm old. I'm supposed to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus begins to talk to him about being born of water and the Spirit. And in John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus said to him, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. God tabernacles among us because His Spirit is present in this world. He lives within us, and He goes through us as we go and share the gospel. But we also, I stand in this place every week preaching to you, understanding that there is nothing that I can do. I am not articulate enough. I am not creative enough. I am not winsome enough to persuade you to anything that will last longer than lunch. I might be able to talk you into some biscuits. But that's about it. But I stand here every week knowing that there is one who teaches through me. The Spirit is moving and the Spirit wants to take up residence and abide in the lives of those who do not yet know Him. The Spirit moves and is longing to lead people into the truth of God's Word. People often, in this, this concept of God meets us where we are and the tabernacle teaches us, people often think that they have to clean themselves up before coming to God. Maybe you've encountered people like that. Maybe you're actually sitting here today and you're wondering, I wonder what am I doing here? Man, if these people really knew who I was and what I, what I do and all these things, they wouldn't let me in this place. People often think they have to clean themselves up before coming to God, but let me just tell you something. You can't. It's impossible for you to clean yourself up before you come to God. There's, um, you know, the, the Aflac commercial where the guys are in the boat and the, the duck's in the boat with him and he starts springing all these leaks and the duck starts, you know, and, and he beak in the, in the hole and, you know, Aflac, you know, uh, underwater. The reality is your boat has way more holes than you can ever plug. You remember when Adam and Eve chose to rebel and they're there in the garden and all of a sudden God comes in and hide. You know, they could run into the bushes and make for themselves fig leaves to cover themselves. We look at that and we go, how stupid were Adam and Eve, right? And God made those bushes. God sees, sees, sees where they are, sees them in their hiding. You can't hide from God. We asked the question in our Sunday school class this morning, what in the world was Jonah thinking? Did he think he could actually somehow escape the presence of God by going the opposite way? The reality is, when you and I are in the middle of our running, we think that somehow this is justifiable. But the reality is, if you're right now thinking, I've got to clean myself up before I can come to God, you are in for a rude awakening. You can't do it. The tabernacle teaches us that God meets us where we are. Now, he doesn't leave us where we are, but he meets us where we are. The last thing I would say to you out of this, this morning, the tabernacle teaches us that God is holy. That God is holy. As the people lived in their meager tents, and you've got to think they were meager tents probably, 
They're, they're camping in these probably shreds of, of, of tents, and I understand God provided for them, and they were well provided for, well taken care of, but they're living in these meager tents, and all the while, everywhere they're camped, they're looking over and they're seeing not a meager tent, but a, an extravagant tent in their midst. And it would have been a visible, constant reminder that God was different from them. Let me give you just some, some details of the tabernacle, and I'm going to fly through these, okay? We'll get into more details and what they mean next week. But here's some details. The, the innermost layer of the, the curtain that made up the tabernacle, the inside of the tabernacle, was made of 10 sheets of fabric, each measuring 6 feet by 42 feet. They were sewn together in sets of 5 to make two enormous curtains. They were joined together by 50 golden clasps. They were draped over a frame to make the roof and sides of the tabernacle. They were made of fine linen that was adorned with colorful blue and purple and scarlet yarn. They were embroidered onto these tapestries, images of, of cherubim, these angels that, that uh, guard the heavenly throne room of God. They were covered on the outside of that, uh, just still on the innermost layer of the tabernacle. Out on, on those layers of the linen embroidered uh, are, are layers of, of wool, which in turn was covered with two protective layers of animal skins. Then you go to the second layer. That's just the first. You go to the second layer that made it the tabernacle, and it's made of goat's hair, which is a sturdy fabric that's still used by nomads in the Middle East to, to make tents today. And this would have been slightly larger than the ones underneath, perhaps six feet by 44 feet to completely conceal what was inside. There were two more layers were put on top to protect everything underneath from the elements, almost like putting a tarp over it. And the outer tents were made of, of leather, ram skins, and, and weather-resistant hides of what are called sea cows. Now, they don't, people differ on kind of what that is. I don't know if it's dolphins or, or, or what it is, but there's some kind of hide that is weather-resistant that's on the outside. Um, the, the frame itself is nearly 50 pillars of, or columns of wood covered with gold, perhaps 15 feet tall. Rested on silver pedestals, two per column for a total of almost 100. For stability, the pillars were connected by golden crossbars with double columns at the corners. The dimensions of the tabernacle overall was, was 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, and 15 feet high. Uh, the holy place, which is the, the bigger part of the inside of the tabernacle, was a rectangle. It was 15 feet wide by 30 feet long by 15 feet high. And then the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, was a perfect cube. And it was 15 by 15 by 15. And, and also, if you look at the tabernacle and you look at its presence among all these tents, the reason I say that God is holy is not only the distinction and the, just this vast distinction between the, their situation and God's, but also, if you read through the accounts, and I don't have time to do all that, you can go back and read the, the rest of Exodus. Holiness seems to increase the closer you get to the middle. If you start on the outside, uh, it's one, one commentator compared it to a nuclear reactor. It, he said, as one moves closer and closer to the core, one gets bombarded by increasing levels of radiation. And that's what you and I need to picture and think of as far as the holiness in the camp. The materials changed. If you go to the outskirts, it's talking about wood and bronze and silver and gold and pure gold. 
And it moves from those lesser elements to those more precious elements. Not only that, but the placement of the people speaks of the increasing holiness toward the center. On the outside of the camp were the Gentiles and those Israelites who were unclean. Inside the camp, were, that's where the Israelites themselves camped. They camped according to their tribes, three on each side around this thing. Uh, then inside of them were the Levites. They camped in the immediate vicinity of the tabernacle. And then even beyond that, there was one particular day of the year where one priest, the high priest, was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies. So it just gets, the placement of people just speaks to the fact that it gets holier and holier the closer you get to the center. And all of this was to remind the people that God was holy. That even though He wanted to be with them and He met them where they were, He still couldn't be approached casually. And we live in a day, fast forward to our day today, we live in a day where people want to approach God casually. It wasn't too many years ago that there was a popular t-shirt going around that was worn by Madonna and other people that said, Jesus is my homeboy. God is often referred to as the big man upstairs. He's treated as though he's a genie who they can approach for what they want. People want to approach God casually, but listen to what Philip Graham Ryken said in his commentary. Most Israelites only saw the curtains and other furnishings when the priests moved the tabernacle from place to place. They never got to tour the place. Only the priests could enter, and only when they had some priestly duty to perform. And as soon as they entered, they were confronted with another curtain immediately, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. According to the Jewish Talmud, this veil was four inches thick and took more than a hundred priests to move. The average Israelite never saw, I said this earlier, I'll say it to you again, the average Israelite would have been very aware that God was holy because they never saw inside. They would have been very aware of God's holiness and felt as though God were almost completely unapproachable. But Riken goes on and he says, Almost unapproachable because there was one way to enter. The curtains in the tabernacle were doorways after all. So they were designed to let God's people in. The way they could enter God's presence was to send a representative to go for them. First Moses and later the high priest. And the way their representative penetrated the veil was by carrying an atoning sacrifice for sin. His sin as well as the sins of the people. This was the only way. Riken said... There was no back door to the tabernacle. The only way for unholy sinners to enter the presence of a holy God was by means of a blood sacrifice. And this is what makes Matthew 27, 50 and 51 so significant. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit on the cross. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, not from bottom to top, Someone could, someone could fake that. Someone could, could, could come in and, and make that thing happen. But instead, 51 says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, displaying that God himself ripped that curtain in two. Jesus became the only representative by becoming the sacrifice itself. I shared this verse with you earlier. I'll share it again. Matt, or, or Hebrew chapter 10, verse 20 says... We have confidence to enter the holy places 
by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The tabernacle was a reminder to them that God is holy and he cannot be approached casually, but it is also a reminder, and we'll look at all the, the, the furniture and all the things next week, but every time blood was brought to that place, it is a reminder that there is one way that God can be approached, and it is through the finished work now of Jesus Christ. So let me just ask you two or three practical things out of this. Look at the fact that God wants to be with his people, and God is holy, God meets us where we are. Let me just give you some, some things to think about. Number one, have you personally gained access to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ? Through God's perfect sacrifice? Or are you yet holding on to something that you might one day be able to do? Is that how you come? Trusting completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In a minute we're going to come to these tables and those who are Christians in good standing with either this church or the church that you're visiting here from will come to these tables and, and you will take the bread and you will remember that this bread represents the physical body of Jesus that he lived for me. He lived a perfectly righteous life for me. And that he died for me. That his body was broken for me. His blood was spilt for me. And this is my only hope of being accepted by God. We'll take that cup and we'll say, God shed his own blood. He became the bloody sacrifice for me. And we'll do that. And we'll remember, have you gained access to God? Not through communion, but through what communion represents. The finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Number two is this. Have you worshipped God for the fact that he tabernacled in your life while you were still cowering in the valley? You remember? The Israelites are scared to death. Moses, you go up, you speak to God, you tell us what he said. But we're, we don't, we don't want to go up. And we don't want to hear from him directly. They're cowering in the valley, and God says, Moses, here's the law, and oh, by the way, put together a tabernacle for me because I want to dwell with my people. Have you celebrated the fact that when you were lost in your sin, when you were running a hellbound race, when you're cowering in the valley, that God, through his spirit, reached out to you and showed himself to you in such a way that he became lovely, that he became your only hope? Number three, to the Christians in the room, are you squandering the privilege of unhindered fellowship with God? Don't miss the fact that for hundreds of years, they looked at a room they couldn't go into and wondered what it must be like. Are you squandering that today? Child of God, we have access to God. He lives within us as believers. Are you drawing near to Him? The tabernacle teaches us so much about God. I pray 
that he would continue to draw us to himself. I want to pray, and then I'm going to give you instructions as far as the communion today. Lord Jesus, we love you. And God, I thank you that you love us. And God, I thank you that the tabernacle shows us that. And Lord, more than the tabernacle or the temple or altars, God, you sent Jesus himself. That Jesus tabernacled among us. And Lord, that's what we count on. Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know you as their only hope of being saved and being accepted by God, Lord, today that you might save them. That that John 3, 8, where you're explaining the wind of the Spirit, God, that you would move in this place. And God, that you might open the hearts of people so that they might receive you. God, I pray, Lord, that we would, we would not take for granted your tabernacling among us. But instead, God, that you would become the treasure that's worth leaving everything for. Lord, that we would draw into your presence and that we might be changed. And I pray this in your name. Amen. In just a minute, uh, Ethan's going to play and the musicians are going to lead us. And, and uh, the tables are up here to celebrate communion together. Now, if you're here with us, as I said, and, and you are a, um, a born-again believer who actually believes that Jesus died for you and was raised so that you might live. If, if you are a blood-bought, counting on that alone, only hope, then we invite you to come to the table. We also believe, though, that this is, this is for the church. And so if you're here as a member of this congregation, uh, good standing with us, we invite you to come to the table. If you're here visiting from another church and that believes likewise like we do, and you're in good standing with that congregation, we invite you to come to the table. But if, if there's something that you're running from and, and it's created some separation and fellowship between you and God or you and his people, then we would just ask you to, to take seriously the not eating of this meal to, to, with us today. That you might look at that and say, God, make me right with you and right with your people. And that you might go and restore uh, this is a time not for us to, to approach God casually or, or to, um, to, to catch up on things in the middle of, of the, uh, the aisle as we're lined up to take the elements. This is a moment for us to come together, maybe with your family, maybe with people on your row or from your life group or Sunday school class or whatever the case may be, and meet with God to draw near to Him, to remember what He did died on the cross but also that he has been raised and that one day he is returning and that's why we do this today so as you're ready I'm going to ask you just to go ahead and, and stand when you're ready and come and begin to take the elements if you're here and you can't get to the front for some reason if you just raise your hand and let us know we'll be glad to come and serve you but let's worship God by remembering and looking forward to his sacrifice This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.